This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Today we visit with Eugene A. Rossetti, who is visiting us from Virginia and has written a book titled Fixes That Last, The Executive's Guide to Fix It or Lose It Management. And it's a second edition. Welcome, Gene. Thank you very much, Jay. Good to be here. Pleasure to visit with you today, sir. Tell me of your background. I understand you have probably 50 years of experience in management or in that field. That's right. About Actually, a little more right now, but uh, basically 50 years of leadership and management experience. I started working uh, very young and got put in charge of things, and I did well, part-time jobs through high school and college, 27 years in the Navy after that, and uh, for a little more than 22 or three years, uh, I've been a management consultant, author, auditor, military analyst, and uh, borrowed executive wow. ever since. Do you have any spare time, or is it all spent in management studies? Well, I find as long as I have a pickup truck, I'm never lonesome, so I the kids you. are always asking me to come <laughs> out and do something, so I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm never lonely. Because of your focus on management, this book deals specifically with that. Is that your target audience? My target audience, yes. The short answer is yes. I'm really uh, looking to help executives who who don't have a lot of time uh, to to uh, to fix something before uh, they lose the opportunity. That is, they ever either get replaced themselves or the company uh, gets to a point where there's no. Uh, there's no rescue anymore. I want the, uh, the executives I write for are busy guys. They don't have time to, uh, to go on a sabbatical, to go and take a, uh, an executive MBA course or anything like that. They need help. They need it right away. My book is based on things that I have used through those many years and very uh, successfully. And one of the beautiful things about your book is they can use it as a reference guide. They don't have to read it cover to cover necessarily. I mean, if they have a, exactly. a, an, an ex, a, a situation with, say, environmental management, they can go to a section and, and discover your advice on that. Uh, if they have something with due diligence, which is another area of uh, management concern, they can go to that section and learn about it. general idea of your book is broken down so it's a very simple guide for an executive to get to the hot point, the hot button that he's dealing with at that moment, and address it. Would that be a way to describe it? Exactly right. And the in the second edition, I give them the opportunity to I direct them to my... Uh, or invite them, rather, to my website where they can download checklists on those particular subjects. So even if they're really not very, don't have an awful lot of background in a particular area, if they go to that checklist, they can be uh, they can be sent in the right direction, especially in things like environmental management where we've all got to uh, teach ourselves something right away before things get out of control, or in information security management, that has something that's actually pulled into the fast lane and and replaced environmental management as far as things 
executives need to know right away. And everybody impacts, regardless of what their particular uh, organization does or company does, they do have an environmental footprint. And these days, of course, they are vulnerable to any kind of hacking, or cyber attack, or or you know any kind of an industrial espionage environment. Do you address that as far faster? Yes, in in uh, addressing that particular issue, is it something that you describe as a uh, from a technical standpoint, or is it just a practical guide that will get them through step one, two, and three to get that technical side taken care of? Uh, well, it's it's more practical. It it tells them where they should look for certain things, or gives them things to think about, and helps them to structure their response. Now, how actually technical in the in, in computers, for example, uh, they have to get. I really, you know, I can't help them that much, but uh, I can get them going in the right direction. I can give them all of the things they need to consider. Now, in your years of management consulting, what is the number one problem or issue that you see executives facing? I think the biggest thing, and what I've seen is. They uh, things go wrong that they don't even know are happening because they they don't audit enough. I'm, I'm a believer in internal auditing. That is the company just auditing itself and looking constantly or continuously at the work it's doing and trying to make it better. The uh, I find that this is uh, lacking in. Uh, in most of these places, the uh, right along with that is the belief that the only way that you can be fixed, the company can fix itself, is to bring in an outside consultant to come in and do this stuff for them. Uh, that can help, but uh, the ground rules have got to be established. That outside consultant uh, has to know, as does the, uh, the CEO, that he's going to leave after a little while and you know he can't bring him he can't write his strategic plan he's writing he's helping you to write your strategic plan he's helping you to set up your own internal auditing system he goes in and audits that's fine he can find a lot of things wrong but then he gets on his plane and he goes away and you know there's still yours to fix internal auditing you know, consecutively done, consistently done, and thoroughly done. And with all the follow-ups and feedbacks that are included in in the correct process, I, uh, what I believe are the key to the keys to not only turning around uh, a, a bad situation, but also turning it around quickly and uh, inexpensively. There's a very popular. TV program in the United States titled Undercover Boss, where it gives the executive an opportunity to see something in his business from the ground floor up. How important is it for an executive to really intermingle with his staff? It's very important that he know what's going on. Uh, I've seen people that spend too much time on the factory floor and not up in the boardroom. They've got to realize uh, where they have to be, where their most important where they have the most important place for them to be at a certain time. Uh, it's great to uh, to be out there and know what's going on. The, sub, 
the stories of uh, Ray Walton driving around with all the Walmarts and mm-hmm. the pickup trucks and seeing all the folks. That that's good as long as he's back at the office, back at his own, you know, in his own conference room, uh, you know, directing. Absolutely. Some people spend too much time out there. There's there's never there's there's no one right answer. The uh, the most effective executive is the guy that knows where to be. The, the guy or lady who knows where he should be at a certain time. What's the best use of his time? The temptation to lose yourself in the, you know, in the details and, and lose the big picture. In introducing this book to someone, how would you do so in a couple of sentences? Basically, uh, that this is for you if you are a no-nonsense executive. This is a no-nonsense book for no-nonsense people. You've got something to do. You've got to do it right away. And every uh, tick of the clock is, you know, money that the company is not making or a competitive advantage that it's losing or a risk that it's taking or a bad uh, neighbor that it is becoming if it, in fact, is uh, creating hazardous waste or, or in some way uh, damaging the, uh, the surrounding community, the extent of which is limited only by the size and, and nature and mission of the, of the organization. And you also outlined the importance of an executive understanding what his purpose is and what his goals are and how to set those. Yes, indeed. The strategic planning is very important. You see strategic plans written by all kinds of outsiders that will come in and, or you'll have a company that will take all its executives and send them off to a, uh, you know, a retreat someplace. But And they have their uh, purposes, but... The important thing is you get the strategic plan down and you, on paper, you identify, well, the simplest way to do it is uh, SWOT, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and technology, what you got going for you and what are the uh, what are the problems. Get it all down and then take your, go- start with your, your mission and then into your goals and the, your goals and objectives. And then from there, into your into your milestones where you take each of those goals and break it down into some to use a Washington term actionable uh, step for example a goal can be eliminate all hazardous waste uh, in the organization uh, an objective is to reduce hazardous waste by 10 percent by the 31st of December mm-hmm. and the milestone uh, the production department under Joe Smith will reduce hazardous waste in that department by 10% by the end of uh, by the 31st of December. And then there's a feedback in there, and you, you don't just write this beautiful strategic plan and then put it on the shelf and forget about it. You continue to follow it up in your management re- meetings. You, you progress all of these things. All right, it's now the 15th of January. How did we do? Uh, reducing waste by 10% by the 31st of December two weeks ago. Well, turns out, you know, we didn't, we made it, we didn't make it, we got 20% down. Uh, all one, the important thing is, did we follow up? 10% may have been a bad, a bad number, may have been too much, too, or too little. But the important thing is in the strategic planning is following up once you've made those plans. 
Gene, you can tell by your conversation and also by your book that you are a no-nonsense, get-to-the-bottom-line personality, which executives need. They need to be able to go to a reference point and not get lost in the weeds. And uh, this is a great way to approach it. I, I, I think you're providing a wonderful uh, process for executives to I- enhance their skills. How long did it take you to put this into print, Gene? I guess it took me about, uh, well, this is my second. The one uh, we're talking about is my second book. And uh, that took me about a year and a half. I had a little, I had some free time, and the idea struck me that uh, it needed to be done. In fact, my first book, which is The Executive's Guide to Corporate Responsibility Management uh, and MVO 8000, which is a corporate responsibility standard that I co wrote. Uh, in the time I was writing that book, I was thinking of other things, and I thought, well, gee, I'd like to go into this, but this is not the book for it. This is not the venue for it. So I just kind of kept all of that in mind, and by the time the first one was ready to go to the press, I had this list of things that I still thought needed to be covered, and that was the structure for this book. The third book... uh, it just went to press called the Executive's Guide to Internal Auditing. And that is, in fact, based in no small degree on the book that we're talking about right now as a launching point for the second one. Gene, was there extensive research that had to go into the structuring of this book? Oh, yes. Uh, well, the structuring, not so much the structuring, but there were areas that I wanted to not only just give my own experience on, but I also, uh, you know, I did some research to get some other good ideas and, uh, you know, from some experts and, you know, other experts. And I referenced them. There are two excellent books on emergency management that uh, I reference in that book that are, uh, that they too are, I think, no-nonsense, get-to-the-point books. And I was happy to add those to the bibliography and uh, make sure that, you know, the executive finds a little time to, you know, to put this one, that one on his desk, too, or on his bookshelf so he can look through it. Fabulous. 284 pages. Were there any challenges that you had to face or overcome to get this completed? Just the normal discipline, you know, stay with it. Don't, uh, don't do anything, you know, get back to work. You know, don't uh, don't do this. Don't do that. Uh, stay right at your desk, and you know, like I guess, like anything, you just got to stay at it. Find the time. If you want to do it, you make the time. And I was very lucky. I guess I had I had enough time. Uh, I found the time. I would call this a must-read for any executive or any wannabe executives. The title again is "Fixes That Last: The Executive's Guide to Fix It or Lose It Management." Second edition, and our author, Eugene A. Rossetti. Mr. Rossetti, where can our listeners get copies of your book? They can get it through uh, Amazon, of course, or Author House, which is the publisher. But uh, you go to, or a Barnes & Noble website, <coughs> pardon me, any, uh, any of the normal avenues for, uh, for books. Uh, they're not normally found on uh, on a shelf in the bookstore, uh, but that really doesn't slow you down. You can get these just 
they can be offloaded or downloaded. As a matter of fact, they exist. Uh, that book exists in a, as an ebook. It can be downloaded, or it can be ordered uh, through Amazon or AuthorHouse, and it'll get there. It'll get to you pretty quickly. And most local bookstores, if you go and request it, they'll also get a copy for you. They'll order it from the uh, publisher. Again, the title fixes that last, The Executive's Guide to Fix It or Lose It Management. Our author, Eugene A. Rossetti. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Look forward to visiting with you in the future on your next project. That'll be great. Looking forward to it. For Author House, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled The Journal Messages to Kara. Our author, Blake Matthew James, who joins me from a bunker somewhere in the northern United States near Milwaukee. Welcome, Blake, to the program. Well, thanks, Jay, for having me. This is a, a novel that I at first anticipated to be a nonfiction, but it is a fictional work, but it has some, some actual truth in it, at least it's based on some truth. Tell me the story behind the story. How did you come to write this, and what was the inspiration behind it? Well, like most people, I fell in love when I was 17 years old, and it's a love story that you can't have nowadays, because nowadays you can't lose the person that you're that you fell in love with, with Facebook and all these other social media, you, you can't lose them. But back in the, in the 80s and the early 90s, you could lose contact with the one that you loved. Right. And I lost contact with her, and I kept trying to find her, and finally found her on Facebook, and that's how the story kind of begins. This is set in contemporary times, then? Yes, it is. Your main character, who would that be? That would have been me. You and then Kara is the. She was the one who stole my heart when I was a young man, trying to find my way in this world. Give a little bit of an outline of the story. I know that there's lost love and redemption where you find the love again, but there's got to be more to the story than that. That could have been written in a couple of pages. You've got 116 pages. A refresh for me and for my listeners. Where does this story begin? What part of the country? And uh, lay a little groundwork for me. It begins back in the mid mid late 80s where I found this girl and we had a summer of just young love where I knew what I wanted to be back then and then the story kind of goes about where we lose who we really are inside 
our dreams, our goals, we get tied down to our jobs and doing other things. But yet I always knew there was a person that, that I wanted to find and that was, that was Karen. So I searched and when I found her, we sat there and it was funny emails back and forth as we tried to rekindle the flame and I probably shocked her by the same how I felt and how long I'd looked for her. She was in my mind for so long that it was kind of kind of crazy just finding her. You've named your main character, Joe. When Joe is in this fantasy world, like a lot of us perhaps are, when we look back at our, our life, maybe our teenage year, I fantasize and think, boy, that was a great time. But was it really a good time when Joe actually comes to the reality of what life is all about and how it is today? Was it as great as his fantasy? Life back, well, the belief of what life was going to be would was so much different than what it is. But that's the, the exciting thing about finding someone like like Tara. When I found her, it reminded me of all the goals that I wanted to do and all the, the things I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to be a comedian. I wanted to get into music. And these are all things that since I found her and communicated, I've actually went back to starting up again where... I'm out doing comedy now, and I also play blues harmonica. So it just reminded me of all the things that I wanted to do, and now I'm reinventing myself back to that where I don't let work just take over everything. Who do you think is going to enjoy reading your your book, your account, your your novel, your your fantasy world that you have created? I believe anyone who who has ever had a love that they've lost or even someone they they searched for. Um, love is, is all around us, but a lot of times we just can't see it. And just kind of anyone who really is, has, has ever felt love, I think they're going to enjoy this kind of book. And Blake, your novel, does it have any nostalgic moments and maybe some poignant moments as well? Yeah, there's some there's some real poignant, poignant moments. And some of the things I, I edited out, like, there was a time we were driving in the car and we started singing "Don't You Want Me." <laughs> that never made the book, but that was there was actually a moment in there that I that I was going to put that in there, but I didn't get in didn't, didn't get into the final copy. But possibly a wise choice, unless you were talking about donuts or some other kind of uh, confection. <laughs> uh, no, we were just kind of. It was me and me and Car- we had our we had our breakup and. I tried to reconnect with her a year later, and then another year after that, it was an on and off thing that I always kept trying to revert back to her. Now, I was—I ended up dating someone else, even when when she came back to town, and yet I was drawn like a magnet to the car. So, hmm. this being a fictional work for Joe and Kara. Um, what were the messages or, or underlying themes that came through as you were crafting this novel? Got me there, Jay. <laughs> uh, underlining, I'm trying to think of a good word to say for that. Are there moments that really impact our lives that maybe we don't even realize impact our lives? There, there's tons of moments that I, that I think a lot of us, we, we lose in the, in the midst of just living our lives. That unless you have a journal or you keep math, keep your, your notes, a journal, a life's journal, you don't remember all the little moments that have, that's, that have impacted us that lead us 
along our way to becoming who we're going to be. There are many in contemporary world, especially in the, the pop culture that we're in, that have a feeling that, hey, if they can make it, I can make it. It's uh, one of those old songs I think that even Frank Sinatra sang about. Now, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Was there any of that sentiment that entered your novel? Yes, yes, lots of it. I, I believe just by finding her, Cara didn't need me and I didn't need her. We're, she's, she's successful, I'm successful, but yet I believe that life would have been so much, would have been so much more if I would have never lost it. So I guess that's the way I tried to put that. And hopefully it, it rings out in the book. I'm sure there's parts of it that you can, it'll make your hair stand up in the back of your neck where you can feel it. Is there anything in particular you want readers to take away from your work? Never give up on, on at least attempting to find that person who, who moved you or moves you today. And don't be afraid to let them know don't be afraid to fail. There's so many things that we do in this in this life that we we get to the point where we just are afraid to get beat down and and told and rejected, told no, you can't do that. And instead, just go for it. Do it with all of your heart, all of your passion, and the results will speak for themselves. Uh, in your novel, as you're wearing your, as Joe is wearing his heart on his sleeve. Is there a scene in there that might be considered more than just hopelessly romantic? It might go into maybe an action scene or uh, a scene that would stand out to the reader. There's not as much action as there is kind of comedic, comedic moments where in an email or a message back and forth where it, it can make you just rolling on the floor laughing crazy as the story could get. She'll be saying, well, what do you do for a living? And I'd be like, well, I work here. <laughs> and, and, and just be funny enough that it would it would actually make you just kind of laugh. So it has the comic moments in it that I think would be interesting. That makes, that makes a, a, a novel interesting to read and fascinating, too, at the same time. And even though this is fictional, there are some elements of truth in here. How would you introduce this book to somebody in a couple of sentences? The... Story that you got me, Jay. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to. I just, as the Mike Wallace wannabe interviewer of authors, I wanted to know. Actually, I just thought it would be an interesting question. That is an interesting question. I just never actually, and that's something I need to actually think of. How would you introduce it in two sec, in two minutes, or two sentences? Well, in a couple of sentences, <laughs> you know, you got you got your you got your main guy Joe, and then you got Kara, and what goes in between? A search for love that that leads you back to who you wanted to be when you were young, being good or bad. And most of our goals, I think, when we're young are, are good. So, Would this uh, fit for all ages? I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, would my teenage son or daughter enjoy this read, or is this maybe a little more advanced than that? It would be great for all ages. Some of it may be harder for the younger generation as... They've never experienced without having Facebook or Twitter or all these social media. It, it kind of takes love from back in the old days to it moves it into the 21st century where we have all these media ways and a love that you, can, you can't lose people nowadays. 
scary. You can, it, it's scary what you just described because you've described the old days as the 80s, and uh, I'm 105, so that doesn't seem that long ago. <laughs> well, I'm catching you. I'm 95. So <laughs> <laughs> There must have been some challenges being a first novel. Are you planning to do more? What were the challenges in this project? Putting it all together, when I was in school, I was never a good student or Nobody would have ever thought I would have been a writer. I was I was the class clown. So putting a book together alone was just, it took a lot of help from other people, a lot of inspiration from other people where they pushed me to do it. And the story's always been in me because I did keep a journal. I, I wrote down so many things while I was driving trucks when I was, I'd write about her. And so just putting all the notes together and I don't know, just putting it together was, was the biggest challenge. And then finding an editor who could help by form of dyslexia, then it just kind of helped to put it all out there and have somebody help me go through the writing of it. Your title has a what would be described as a, I guess, an old-time ink pen as a background image that's faded somewhat, and it Sort of looks like a candle also. It reminds me that candles eventually lose their flame or just are extinguished. Blake, that was a great choice of images to put on your novel. This story, titled The Journal, Messages to Kara. And our author is Blake Matthew James. Now, Blake, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? You can find it online just about any location. And you, the best place to find it is probably Author's House, my publisher, and... Do you have plans to write a sequel to this? I actually am in the works of writing a sequel. Well, congratulations, and congratulations on what you have achieved so far. This should be a, an interesting read for a lot of people. It's 116 pages, so even people with a short attention span should enjoy the read and uh, certainly get an insight into unrequited love and uh, you know a desire for the past. You've done a, a good job of putting that idea into print. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you, Jay. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. A very important book has been presented to us titled Highs, Lows, and Plateaus, A Path to Recovery from Stroke, and our author is Dr. Anne Burley Jacobs. Anne, welcome to the program. 
Thank you very much for having me. And for our worldwide listening audience, where are you joining us from? I live in California. <laughs> You're joining me from California. Yes, I am. Fabulous. Well, great to talk with you. In the pre-interview discussion, I noted that you had also spent some time in Canada, my home country, and also had visited some other parts of the world that I, uh, I have also visited, with different purposes, of course. Tell me your background and why this book became important to you and why you wanted to share it. Well, basically, um, I graduated as a physical therapist back in 1985, and then uh, working with patients with brain injury on a special unit at a hospital in Denver, Colorado, became more and more interested in neurological patients. So I then pursued my doctoral degree in neuroscience and physiology at the Oregon Health Sciences University. And while I was doing my doctoral studies, I had the opportunity to travel to different places around the world, including Canada and Spain and London, and really learning from some of the, the best in the field. Um, so it was a blessing, but it kind of deepened my passion for stroke rehabilitation. So after I completed my doctoral degree, I really went into more of a teaching role, working with private clients, but also trying to disseminate some of the information that I had learned as a graduate student working in the neurology field and understanding the neurosciences and the physiology of recovery and trying to figure out a way to disseminate that information to the people who really needed it the most, which were the people who were living with the consequences of a brain injury. Um, and so having done quite a bit of teaching, I also helped to start the Peninsula Stroke Association based in California um, to try to again provide advocacy and support and education about stroke. And in doing that, I started preparing a series of lectures about the risk factors for stroke, uh, the recovery from stroke, what families need to know. And I presented that lecture to, I don't know, thousands of people. And each time people say, oh, I wish this was written down somewhere. I wish I could read mm -hmm. this later and think about it. So a couple years ago, my clients really started pestering me and said I had to write it down. And so, highs, lows, and plateaus. I'm happy um, you, you have shared that information. The rise of stroke occurrences in families and in the general populace. Do you find it to be higher here, or is it basically the same percentage of the population worldwide? Well, there are variations worldwide, but, um, you know, primarily in the United States, one would think with our, our growing knowledge base, we would see the incidence decreasing, but unfortunately, it really isn't. Mm. Um, stroke is the leading cause of disability in our nation, and stroke actually kills more women each year than breast cancer and heart disease combined. Amazing stats. Um, and, and so it is a rather frightening uh, statistic. The difficulty with stroke is that people often don't die. They, they live with the disability following the stroke. And it's unfortunate because in the last 10, 15 years, we've had tremendous advances in the treatment of stroke, the emergency treatment. But really not enough people are recognizing the signs of the stroke and getting to a treatment facility in time. And we've also had tremendous advances in the treatment of, of the disabilities following stroke, of the, the paralysis and the sensory loss and the speech problems. 
But unfortunately, many rehab facilities and, and neurologists and physicians around the country are still stuck in their old ways. Mm-hmm. They're not embracing the new technologies. And it really leaves it up to the family and the loved one to seek out those resources themselves. I have, um, uh, I have a friend that just passed from uh, having a severe stroke. I have another one that's in hospice care. And I have a family member that, in fact, it was my father who died because of stroke uh, results. Uh-huh. So it's a very pervasive and difficult, I guess, malady to actually deal with as a family member and get correction and get improvement. It is, and one of the things I tried to stress in writing um, my book, The Highs, Lows, and Plateaus, is that there is no single survivor of stroke in a given family unit, that in fact, stroke is one of those pathologies that really affects the entire family. And so, in effect, everyone is a survivor, because um, living with the disability following stroke or, or the aftermath is a very arduous and long process. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted the book to be a conversation that um, I think instilled hope in people and possibly provided them the incentive to reach for more given a better understanding. Because I find that if I can educate my clientele, they go on to heal themselves mm. um, once they've been provided that appropriate information. And then there are people like I'm sorry, you know, your father that that really the devastation is is significant and that's a hard thing to accept, but with brain injuries we never really know what we're going to get. What are the the warning signs that you would highlight as mm-hmm. the beginning signs of a stroke? Well, the first chapter or two in the book really emphasize these warning signs and they they're available pretty much everywhere but the ones that I like to use are off the little stick figure, which was drawn for Peninsula Stroke Association. But if we had to kind of boil it down to a nutshell, um, many uh, places are using the slogan FAST. And what that means is the F is the face. We're looking for changes in the symmetry of the face. Uh, one side may droop or look a little bit off-centered, off a little skewed. Uh, the person may have difficulty enunciating their speech or formulating words. Um, the A in the word fast stands for arm, and that's someone who you're looking to see if they're having difficulty lifting their arm against gravity or if they're not using the arm in a normal fashion. And then the, um, the S, again, is for speech. We're looking for slurred speech, confused speech, disoriented speech, um, and then time is the most important thing, is we've got to recognize things on time. The other, the other factor that I like to include is the, a headache. And often someone who's having a stroke will report that they had a headache. Um, and the classification is that it's the first or the worst. And they'll often tell you, I, I have headaches, but I never had one like that headache. Hmm. Or it was the worst headache of my life. Um, and that's a big indicator. And then the other thing that I always look for or ask people to look for is a disruption in balance where people feel off balance. They may be dragging one leg or they may be staggering. Um, it's unfortunate, but often the appearances of stroke are similar to someone who might be intoxicated. Um, so really looking for that asymmetry or, or change on one side of the body, complaints of headache or confusion, 
difficulty speaking. And uh, I, I basically live by the rule, if you see two or more in combination, something's wrong. <laughs> we don't know what, but right. something's wrong. So you, seek emergency attention. You mentioned uh, advances in technology that many are in the medical profession are not uh, embracing. What are you finding out there that is new and will help improve the uh, the condition of those who have suffered a stroke? Well, if if we look at the emergency treatment of stroke, there are a number of tools uh, currently under investigation that can kind of reach into the artery and retrieve the clot. Those are still under investigation, but we also have medications which can be administered, um, and there are other emergency techniques. The critical thing, though, is people recognizing the symptoms and then getting into the hospital in time to have that emergency treatment administered because, unfortunately, with, with brain injuries due to stroke, the longer we wait, the more susceptible the brain is to injury, and it gets trickier to do the emergency protocols. The so time is critical. As far as the rehabilitation side, it really, truly, the medical profession, many people are stuck in a very old, outdated, and, and untrue belief that most that, that most survivors have maximized their recovery at about six months to one year. And that is a completely false statement. It has no sounding whatsoever. It's old, it's outdated, and we know that survivors do in fact show their most rapid improvement during that first six months to a year because the inflammation in the brain is going down. The family has coped with this, this devastating event that has happened to them. And so we do see the fastest improvement, but, but truly improvement from stroke is a, is a lifelong process. Um, people continue to improve. And I, I get emails every week and phone calls every week from people saying, you know, I just was able to do this today. And it's been seven years, but today it happened. It's like, that is so cool. So little things that can be really, really um, life-changing um, may not always show up on a functional scale that's required by the hospital, but for that individual and their family, it's it's huge, huge. I've had a, a very unfortunate task or observational task of seeing someone that has suffered a stroke and, uh, you know, they they struggled for maybe two years and developed... Um, developed a uh, a lung disorder, and in mm. this case it was pneumonia is what was diagnosed. And uh-huh. from that point forward, there was a difficult decision, even though the individual was fairly strong and uh, had not improved or regressed any, to let them pass. Uh, have you noted anything like that in your observations? I have, um, and it's hard. It's always hard to let someone pass, but... But um, there have definitely been many occasions. In fact, I just had a very dear client of mine die a couple of months ago. Um, and, and it is very hard. The one thing I myself believe is that we have to treasure everything that that person's life has brought to them and everything they have brought to others' lives. Mm. And so um, even if, their life is cut short. I try to really instill in people, you know, what what were you able to accomplish in the short time that you did have? Beautiful. And it's always hard to let a loved one go, but I feel very strongly that we have to respect 
people's wishes. Um, I know I just spoke with a family last year whose father had had a stroke, and they wanted to believe all good things, but they also had to look at the indicators for his age, his his abilities, um, his independence before the event, his general health, and it wasn't the cards weren't stacking up in his favor, and so they decided to withdraw life support. And I think for that family, that was the right decision. But for other families, they they have to face it as they choose. And quite often, uh, people survive the brain injury incident. And then what they want to know is, will life always be this bad? <laughs> will it will it get any better? And and it does. It does get better. I'm thinking um, that in your book. In addition to the practical side of what you've discussed and the practical application of how to get through an incident like this, there must be some positive reinforcement that you also share. Tell me, what is the upside, if there is one, to recovering from a stroke? Well, the upside to recovering from the stroke is is the phenomenal capacity of the human brain. Um, We know that there's a very old dogma in uh, science that says that the adult brain is pretty much a fixed, immutable organ, that once we've passed our childhood, the brain is pretty much fixed. And that is outdated and and untrue. Um, We know the brain, the human brain, is capable of tremendous, uh, what we call neuroplasticity. And that neuroplasticity is kind of defined in the book, and it is the history of plasticity is told. Um, We know even more than 100 years ago that scientists were looking into how the adult brain can uh, recover from from injury and how the adult brain learns. And there's been substantial research in the last 20 years on how the brain recovers from injury, how it learns, and really the phenomenal capacity for for change. Um, And so it's kind of the adage... I, I. you know, I tell people that if you're going to be learning to play the violin and you get to go to your lesson twice a week for six months, I don't think at the end of that time period you're going to be proficient and ready to go play at Carnegie Hall. Right. But if you have violin lessons for five to ten years, then we can really see your skill level has advanced. It's no different with recovery. If someone tries to improve their arm function and they're only allowed six months to learn, they won't achieve their goals very often. But if they are encouraged and progressed and provided with adequate information and education about how to progress, and if they have access to all these amazing robotic and bionic tools that we have on the market now, that improvement can be a continuum over many years. Well, Dr. Um, Dr. Jacobs, there's one question I'd like you to share with my, with my listeners, or one answer perhaps. Yes. If someone has a family member that is experiencing the symptoms of a stroke and they are seeking medical help, what is the first question that they should ask? Um, so, Jay, are you asking if if they're having a stroke and they no, need if, emergency I, I'm referring, Yeah, I'm referring more to the the care side. Uh, it's been established that my family member is suffering a stroke. What is the question that they should ask medical providers? 
So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still a little confused. <laughs> if you want to know about the emergency treatment while they're having an actual insult to the brain, not, or not, after the brain's already had the injury and they need to face a long path of recovery. I think that would be more more the question. In other words, if I am talking to a medical provider, what do I say to the doctor? How do I ask the right questions about the condition of my relative or my friend? I think that I would like to um, have patients really start to put their health care providers to the test and ask them, you know, at what stage of recovery is my spouse and what should I anticipate next on the continuum of, of his or her recovery? Good. Because so often people go to their physician and the physician will say, well, this is about as good as it's going to get. You just have to learn to live with it now. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if I have a health care provider that says that, I would encourage any family I work with to get a new health care provider. Find someone who is going to be supportive, who is going to provide you with ongoing information and support, someone who is going to present with a positive outlook on uh, your recovery, Without being, you know, we don't want anyone being frivolous and and giving false hope, but they should be able to let you know what is next. Um, To send someone home completely dependent on their family is not fair to anyone. And a, a skilled health care provider should be able to tell the family at least some of what would be hoped for. Um, the person could possibly walk short distance in their home environment. They may be able to learn to dress themselves independently, uh, eat independently, regain basic speech functions, at least something to look forward to in the future. And don't be afraid to question your provider and get question more answers. Them all the time. Absolutely. Question them constantly. Ask what community resources are available to me and my family. Ask does my insurance allow us to come back for ongoing rehab once per year? Most insurance companies will allow at least a few visits once per year, um, but families don't know that. They, they think they, they have to have an injury to go back for rehab. That's a fabulous um, answer, and the answer I was really looking for is, is the one that you've given. Don't be complacent or expect your provider to necessarily give you all of the right tools to deal with no, the I situation. Think people have to. They have to look for it. And that, in writing highs, lows, and plateaus, I really did try to stress that there are resources available. And I provided phone numbers and websites for people Excellent. so that they can learn how to start asking their own questions and actually calling companies and saying, is my loved one appropriate for this rehab tool? Great, great, great advice. Then go for the next one, and then go for the next one. Would you say that don't give up is an important aspect of recovery? You know, it's not necessarily don't give up, but don't give up until you're at a point where you feel your life has the quality you wanted. So, for example, I have clients who have chosen not to pursue their arm rehabilitation. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they know that the recovery of function in the arm is going to be expensive and it's going to take a long time. And they have learned to live one-handed with much joy and satisfaction. And so for that individual, that's fantastic. 
But for another individual, they may really want their arm recovery. They may decide that that's what they need to do to reach a point where they once again feel satisfied with their quality of life. Uh, Dr. Well, for J- that person, so for those two different people, we have two different branches of rehab. One is to help the person learn all of the tools and tricks and strategies available to living with one hand. For the other person, we have all the tools and strategies and tricks for learning how to recover function in the paretic hand. Fabulous. So it, it just depends on what that person needs for their quality of life. Uh, Dr. Ch- Dr. Jacobs, could you share with me any challenges you had in putting your book into print? Um, well, I won't say that there were actual challenges in putting my book into print. I think the hardest part for me was... Um, I wanted to make sure that I was writing in a conversational tone of voice. I didn't want it to become a scientific book, and I didn't want it to be a book that was kind of, you know, preaching to the choir. Right. I, I was trying to present a conversation that walks the reader through, you know, from the beginning, what what one is experiencing and really kind of have people as they're reading it go, yes, I was there, and yes, I remember that, and yes, and then be able to see, well, what's next? Where do we go from here? And so I presented the stages of recovery because most people, when they go home from their formal rehabilitation, are pretty much stuck in stage two or stage three of recovery. And what I wanted the reader to see is that there's six stages of recovery. Just because you're at two right now doesn't mean you know, you, the, that that was the end of the path, that the path continues, and then try to provide some strategies and some inspiration and some hope to help people continue to progress along that. Because I feel like as soon as the consumer, the stroke survivor and their family, sees the potential, they will start putting more pressure on their health care providers to help them achieve that potential. This is a very important book. And it's titled Highs, Lows, and Plateaus, A Path to Recovery from Stroke. Our guest author, Anne Burley Jacobs. And where can my listeners get copies of this book? Um, The book is published through Author House. um, And so it's available at authorhouse.com. It's also available at amazon.com, at barnesandnoble.com. And then any local bookseller could order the book uh, for people who would like to purchase that. And it is available in hardback, a paperback, and an e-book. Thank you so, so much um, for, for sharing the background story of how and why this book was written and sharing the important information that's contained inside. I recommend it for anybody that has uh, maybe aging family members. Can I please correct you? Oh. Um, it's not just aging family members. No, Our I incidence know that. of stroke in patients or in individuals under the age of 55 has been increasing every year uh, for the last several years. And I have clients myself who range from age 9 to 92. Amazing. Um, so it is not, and, and I would like to dispel that myth, um, it is not a disease of the aging. This is, a, this is something which is happening to Americans of, of every age, of every socioeconomic bracket, and of every race and ethnicity. Um, it's out there. <laughs> Thank you for clearing that up. I did incorrectly say aging because most of the high-profile cases that we're familiar with 
seem to appear in the older population. Thank you it for clearing that up. Unfortunately, so many younger people, uh, when they go into the hospital, their symptoms are misdiagnosed. Um, because, because of the their health care professionals mm. think they're too young. Thank you again for clearing that up. Uh, recommended reading, High Lows and Plateaus, A Path to Recovery from Stroke. Our author, Dr. Anne Burley-Jacobs. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker.